Welcome to Catholic Philosophy. I'm going to ask Dr. Susan Selner Wright to introduce herself, and then I will introduce myself. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, let's see. Um, I grew up in Denver. Um, I went to school. Um, I, I uh, went to the University of Notre Dame uh, as an undergraduate and went to their Great Books program, which was um, a very blessed thing to do. Um, and then I went to the Catholic University of America for my graduate studies and got a PhD there in 1992. Um, but under the academic uh, way of getting things done, which is to let graduate students teach for almost no money, um, I started teaching in 1986. So I've been teaching for 35 years, nice. um, teaching philosophy. Um, and, uh, in 2001, my husband and I started teaching at, um, the Catholic seminary here in Denver, uh, St. John Vianney. And, um, uh, so that's where I've been for the last 20 years and, uh, teaching philosophy to men, preparing for the priesthood and also doing a lot of work, uh, trying to, um, um, uh, sort of help uh, lay people uh, to be formed and to be less intimidated by philosophy than many of them have been in the past, um, and to sort of recover the philosophical tradition as as much our patrimony as Catholics um, as anything else in our tradition. Yeah. And to kind of overcome the sense that kind of crept in in the 70s and the 80s that philosophy was somehow too hard for yeah. people to understand and and also at the same time there was also an attitude in seminaries that philosophy maybe was just too hard and needed to be replaced by things like psychology and sociology and i think we're really still reaping the harm that those ideas did so recovering for, from that yeah. yeah so for both for both men preparing for the priesthood and for the laity i think this is a really kind of an exciting time of of recapturing wait a minute this is our tradition and uh mm -hmm. and if if we can't understand it it's because people aren't teaching it very well <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah thank you um yeah thank you for doing this with me um uh my name is brandon jolloway and i'm uh, i have a bachelor's degree in philosophy um, from the legionaries of christ in um I studied in New York. Um, I um, I left the seminary um, 2004, I think it was, and um, and I'm now married and have two kids, and and um, I do IT support right now. <laughs> but my ongoing fascination, I mean, I actually even before I joined the seminary, I double checked. To make sure that they would teach philosophy. Yes. Oh, so you, you already kind of knew. <laughs> it was yeah. very important to me. Yeah. My um, my older sisters had both gone to um, Thomas Aquinas College in California. Right, which and, is the um, other great uh, great books back bastion. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about going there instead mm. of joining the Legionaries um, right away because I was um, you know just like. No, I'm going to study philosophy. Right. But they, they reassured me that they would teach philosophy in the seminary. So, 
So I went straight to the seminary after high school. Um, yeah, so um, that's who I am. Um, somebody said to me once that um, if you don't teach people philosophy before you teach them theology, like in the Catholic Church, yeah, then when the time comes where a theological teaching seems very difficult, yeah, um, a lot of what has happened in the past is that a lot of the theological teachings ended up feeling a lot like something you memorized. Right. And just and, the, and we're just externally imposed on you yes. and can't be Which yeah. is very different from when you teach a seminarian philosophy first. Right. And then you teach them theology. Right. Because then a lot of the theology makes a lot more sense. Right. Because it's based on the philosophy. Right. Well, yeah, or that the I mean they really do work in partnership, right? I mean, the traditional formulation is that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. And I think that's right. You know, it's a servant yeah. to it, but it's an indispensable servant. Correct. Right? Yeah. You know, I mean, the surgeon, the surgeon keeps asking for the tools, right? And the <laughs> surgical nurse slaps the tools into to the uh, surgeon's hand. Right. And um, it, philosophy is kind of the surgical nurse that has to be there. And the surgeon can't work without the tools, yeah. right? Um, and so part of, part of what makes the Catholic tradition different from um, our Protestant brothers and sisters... I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. ...is that we really believe that. And we've right, always right. believed that. That's always been part of our tradition, that... that um, that God gave us the powers of reason and that philosophy helps us to uh, use those powers well um, and that we can't really do theology the way God wants us to um, unless we are uh, are using our reason mm -hmm. um, in ways that conform with uh, good philosophical thinking, mm -hmm. right? So, um, it and... I just want to go back a minute to, to something you said about studying philosophy before theology so that the theology doesn't just seem like something to memorize and to be imposed from the outside. I run into this a lot uh, because of my work on um, it, uh, challenges that people are facing because of the rise of, of gender ideology and the number of people who are starting to think, well, maybe I'm um, transgender or maybe I'm really non-binary and what does that mean and that um, when the church tries to say look we believe in a soul body unity um, we really think it's just not possible for somebody to have a female mind and a male body because of the way that the soul and the body are um, inform each other yeah um, it, it, by the time I've said that much, right, the other person is already running, screaming with their hair on fire, right? <laughs> because yeah. how how can you possibly um, challenge this person's lived experience, right, that they clearly have a female body but have a male mind, right? How can you possibly challenge that lived experience? And 
<laughs> the answer is, well, because we've been thinking about what the human person is for 2,000 years. And yeah. Aristotle and Plato were thinking about that for, you know, 400 years before that. Right. And, and so, the, And the Jewish people were receiving revelation right, for right. thousands of years before, before that. that. Right. <laughs> so it's not just me coming up with something and now imposing it on someone else and challenging their lived experience. And actually, I'm not challenging their lived experience. I think that's very possible that people are having that experience. Um, but that doesn't, that's not the last thing to say about it, right? Right, right. Um, You know, we... Well, and, and that's not the ultimate arbiter of truth. Right. right? And that's, right. that's well, yeah, but it is for some people <laughs> reality. now. reality. Right, right, yeah, that, that there's a reason philosophically why lived experience now seems to trump everything else, um, but... You have to understand the philosophy that's happened in order to see why people think that trumps everything else. And that idea is really about 200 years old, and it has very suspicious philosophical roots, right? Right. But but the idea that... Unreliable. Right. Intellectually unreliable roots. Terribly unreliable (laughs) and contradictory, right? right? And this idea that each of us has to invent ourselves... So my lived experience is really my only touchstone in inventing myself. That's extremely recent and extremely anxiety-inducing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that there, I, I'm in this on my own. Well, and it it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to flourishing. Like the the idea that you could like actually achieve like real happiness um when when you know deep down that you're the one who made up that definition (laughs) Uh uh-huh it doesn't work like no nobody really i mean you can listen like um like one of the names i wrote down here was hank and john green right they're these popular um youtubers and podcasters and and um and it seems to come up in almost every episode that the anxiety they feel. Yeah. Being nihilists. You know, yeah. I mean, and, and I don't know how, if either one of them would admit that they're nihilists, but, you know, um, I mean, they very clearly are by the way they express themselves, you know, and it's just, it's just like, you know, the meaninglessness of the universe, the, um, the heat death of the universe, like we're, we'll all be dead someday and, like nothing will have any meaning anymore, you know. As soon well, as like and, the heat and, death of the universe happens, and it's like, right? Wow, how like, much how much meaning can it have now? <laughs> this is not working, right? Yeah, it's right. like it's yeah. like you have like tried to invent your own meaning for your own lives, and it's very clearly not working. Like, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's the, there are two brothers, and and one has serious anxiety issues, and the other one doesn't. But, like, neither of them seem, like, deeply happy with the, cho- the choice of, like, we're going to invent our own meaning for life, you know? Yeah. If you reject the traditional Aristotelian Platonic philosophy um, that sees the universe itself as um, tending toward a goal mm-hmm. um, and, and that change itself is oriented, right, toward something definite and not toward just 
any random thing. Um, if you reject that, then where is meaning going to come from? The, well, the only place that seems to be left is my own will, my own mind, right? The meaning I want there to be, right? right? But, you know, um, as soon as somebody uh, tries to get married, right, they recognize, well, the meaning can't just be what I want it to be because now I'm supposed to want it with this other person and... You know, what happens if what they want turns out not to be what I want, da 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 and then marriage itself becomes very, you know, how, how could you commit yourself to living with someone if each of us is just constantly making our own meaning of the thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just go along with, with what you think is true. Just to just to avoid the conflict. Right, exactly. And 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 you know until until um, I just can't stand it anymore. You know I yeah. I don't know or the, but this how much more life giving is it to have a sense that no we're not each making up our own meaning. There is actually a meaning to life, and what we are trying to do is together discover that and live in accordance with it right right so it and so it's not okay for two years you get to decide what the meaning of life is and i'll go along with it and then i get two years to decide the meaning of life right no we can we can be partners the whole time and equal because we're equally pursuing right this this meaning that transcends either one of us You, you know it's really hard to see how a marriage could be a happy thing um, or a permanent thing without that. Right, right. Yeah, no, definitely you see a lot of impermanence in marriage because of that. Um, so I was thinking we could get into the book a little bit. So okay. we're going to go over um, Last Superstition by Edward Fazer, Chapter 1. Right. A little bit. Um, Do we want to tell people how they could get the book if they are inspired to read it themselves. Um, So there are some great places to get this book. Well, the best place is from the press itself. So it's uh, St. Augustine's Press. Mm -hmm. And so if you just, if you just Googled um, the last superstition, uh, Edward Fazer, St. Augustine's Press, you probably get right to their site and can order the book. And that's, uh, that's probably the best way, way to do it. I think it's still available on Amazon. Um, I myself am boycotting Amazon because they are taking over the universe. Um, and I don't want to participate in that. If, uh, yeah, if you live in Denver and you want to pick it up from Our Lady of Lourdes, you're going to oh, get yes. it from the... You can yeah, it's in the narthex. Make a donation. It's in, in the, the narthex. narthex. Yes, very good. That's how I got mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so should we talk a little bit about the title or where do you want to start? Sure, sure. Let's talk about the title. Okay, so the last superstition, um, the subtitle is A Refutation of the New Atheism. Um, and that's kind of a negative formulation that the point of the book is to refute something. Um, but I I think, I think Edward Fazer was in kind of a negative mood when he wrote the (laughs) title. Um, a positive title would be, um, a, a vigorous defense of, of how, um, Catholic, uh, philosophers, uh, think about the 
universe, right? And yeah. and think about God. Um, and the last superstition he's referring to, um, his whole account is that if we are thinking straight, uh, the, the account of Catholic philosophy is actually much more rationally compelling than the alternatives to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that people... Um, just assume that Catholics can't think their way out of a paper bag is because that has just come to be the prevailing opinion, but it's really much more of a superstition um, than Catholicism itself is, right? So the superstition really is this idea that um, Catholics check their brain at the door and that's why they think such stupid stuff. No, (laughs) we think what we think because we are steeped in this Aristotelian Platonic uh, tradition, um, which thinks that reality is meaningful. And that has been arbitrarily rejected um, in the last 500 years. Um, And it's no longer very fashionable. But when did we think that fashion was going to determine the truth? Right, right. Yeah. The um the idea that that I, I don't know, I for some reason it keeps coming back into my mind that um going back to my education in philosophy, um I I was always um there were there were a lot of times where the the professors would um would kind of see me raise my hand to ask a question. Uh-huh. And um they they very clearly did not want to call on me. Yeah. Um, oh, they, uh... I, I I had that too. I had that too. Yeah. They, uh... I I was the same kind of student as you. And, yeah. And I'm always very careful to 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 not do that. Right. Looking looking back, I can see why. Yeah. But um. One yeah. Of, one no, of... it's true. I mean, and it, and it's 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 like other things. You know, it's this balance between classroom management and getting through the Correct. material. Correct. Yeah. Right. And uh, acknowledging the thirst, right, to right. engage in in particular students, right? Yeah. There, but the, uh, the one of the one of the sticking points that that uh, that was hard for me at first was um, understanding the um, transcendentals, right? So, sure, reality and truth being two of them is it's just something that I think there's a lot of times where the conversation we're having with the new atheists, yeah, just the the modern culture, the modern world, mm. um, scientists. There's a lot of people that don't acknowledge. Wait a second. It really is important what you mean by reality. Uh huh. It is really actually very important what you mean by true. Right. Like I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and Lawrence Krauss was talking about how scientists have come up with a new definition of nothing oh. you know for so that so that the universe can pop out of nothingness but by nothingness they're attributing a bunch of like you know things things like <laughs> it has you know, a lot of characteristics laws, laws and you know principles <laughs> and right. all these other things right right to right. the right. concept nothing right you know and it's like wait 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 yeah yeah <laughs> like why are we glossing over this? Like, why right. are we moving past this so quickly? Like, right. th- that's very important. That's very telling. Right. Right. It's right. Like, what do you mean by, right. by nothing? What do right. you mean by true? Right. You know, like, th- these are not 
Right. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're unimportant. They're saying so. These the, here seem to be the the things. So what we would call that in metaphysics is the latent active potency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there has to be something out of which this is coming in order for it to come to be the way that it is. So mm-hmm. there has to be something that has the potential to be this, right? And the whole idea of of um, creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, is that that's not going to work, right? Yeah, and yeah, so, exactly. so, uh, but if you just sort of define your terms and say, oh yes, we are now saying uh, that it comes from nothing, but this is what nothing means, mm-hmm. and it no longer means no what, thing. What the other person, what, <laughs> right. the, what, what your interlocutor right. actually meant right. when he said nothing. That's or right. She, you know. Yeah, that's right. And so, that's and that's a big that's a big challenge. Um, and also it's a big challenge for the church because we tend to learn our terminology um, as it was first intended, right? So a Thomist like me, I tend to use the words I've learned from St. Thomas uh, in the way that he would have used them in the 13th century. Right. But there's a whole lot of stuff that happened after the 13th century that has really changed how other people hear those words. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's it's on me to be aware of that. Right. And to try to avoid um, uh, confusing people. Um, uh, by insisting on the 13th century terminology when I know that it has changed. But on the other hand, if you're too deferential to that, then you just lose so much. I'm I'm writing something right now about um, the fear of the Lord. Yeah. And it is so hard for people to even consider the possibility, right, that that could refer to something positive Mm -hmm. because we have so imbibed the idea that all fear is wrong and bad and harmful, Mm -hmm. right? And people just don't take the time to think, well, gosh, could they have meant something different by it? Right. What what could possibly be a positive sense of fear? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. and so, so there have been times when I've talked about this um, and people have said, oh, well, we, you should just stop using that word. You know, you need to say ah or something like that. And I get that. Uh, but that's not quite what fear of the Lord means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so are we really entitled to refuse to try to understand <laughs> what our forebears are are talking about because now we we find, kind of find some of their words sort of triggering you right, know do right. we do we have any obligation to kind of work through well what did he mean by that yeah it's true uh, you know some sometimes it can like when it's a translation right because it's almost always a translation mm-hmm. like it you can find times where it really is uh, there really are better translations right and then other times you really just have to go back and be like well what what we're translating is this yeah and so you know fear of the lord 
is a good translation, but right. you do need to understand right. So you get like, yeah. so, what is truly meant. Right, exactly. By it, exactly. Know, not... Yeah. So you can't just use it and uh, expect people to understand it. You have right. to, to to introduce it. I mean, and that's just good teaching. Is yeah. thinking about what are people hearing when I'm saying I'm this. I'm trying word. to think if there's any other oh, examples. The, the like... other big one is uh, the English word uh, man, right? translates either the Latin vir, which refers to male persons, or the uh, word uh, homo, homo hominis, which is the neutral term in Latin for human beings. Right, right. So homo hominis does not mean male. It means human. Correct. But it often has been translated man in the singular (laughs) and sometime with a capital M, right, to try to get that it's not, it's talking about humankind. Mm -hmm. So I'm always saying now, well, we should at least translate that in our heads as human beings, right? And probably when we speak to other people who are very aware of of, uh, sex language, right, it's just better to just go with the four syllables human being <laughs> than the one syllable man. But but then, you know, when people want to get really irate that a church document is referring to man, and then you have to point out, well, the original language of the church doc- document is Latin, and yeah. that word in Latin is homo hominis. Uh, so... It's not a problem, <laughs> you know, it's a problem with English that it doesn't have this, but yeah. we're just so much always on the back foot. And, and, we, and, we, and we often also then miss that, like, sometimes the, um, you know, something is referring to the Latin, but originally, like, the text might have been in Greek. Right. And before that, the, the words might have actually been spoken in Aramaic. Right. <laughs> so, so, right. so we're we're not not necessarily referring to the exact same, you know, right. word or uh, right. you know feeling that it evokes, right. <laughs>